Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, ko William Ray ahau. Hi there, I'm William Ray. No mai ki te hipipango. Welcome to Black Sheep. Before we get started, I'm going to give a plug for another show. Recently, I had the privilege of working with Miki Ngairangi Forbes on her New Zealand Wars documentary series. Um, together, we wrote and co-presented the podcast version of her latest episode. It's called The Stories of Tainui. I really recommend you check it out, both the visual doco and the podcast. They feature a bunch of interviews with iwi historians telling stories which have never really been shared with a Pākehā audience before. It's really powerful stuff, and I think it'll give you some good background for the next couple of episodes of Black Sheep, so make sure you check it out. Anyway, let's get to the show. Today, we're telling the story of arguably the most important Pākehā in New Zealand history. It's a big claim, I know, but... Honestly, I think it stacks up. This is the man who led this country into the largest conflicts of the New Zealand wars. He's the man who authorised confiscations and unfair land deals which swept up millions of acres of Māori land. He's a political giant who influenced how a generation of Pākehā viewed this country. And his story isn't just limited to Aotearoa. He played a huge role in the history of South Africa and Australia too. When I first started working on Black Sheep, I actually got warned by a couple of historians, you know, don't touch this guy's story, it's a bit too big to handle. But that was five years ago now, and I think the show's grown a bit since then, so today we're cheerfully ignoring those warnings. This is the story of Governor George Grey. the height of the Napoleonic Wars. We're sitting with the British Army, camped outside the fortress city of Badajoz, right on the modern border between Spain and Portugal. Five years earlier, French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte had seized control of the Iberian Peninsula. Now, Britain and her allies are trying to take it back. The redcoats are raked by musket fire as they crowd through the breaches and the walls and clamber up ladders. Burning bales of hay are thrown down on them from above. It's one of the bloodiest battles of the Napoleonic Wars. In a matter of hours, thousands of men are dead or dying in piles beneath the walls. When the British finally break through, the soldiers rampage. They slaughter hundreds of civilians. It takes three days to bring them under control. 
somewhere in all this carnage is the body of Lieutenant Colonel George Gray. He was cut down, leading his men in a bayonet charge over the ramparts. 200 kilometres to the west in Lisbon, Lady Elizabeth Gray was relaxing on the balcony of a hotel with other officers' wives. She'd accompanied her husband on campaign, even though she was more than eight months pregnant. Below her, a couple of soldiers were gossiping. We don't know their exact conversation, but maybe it went something like this. Did you hear about Badahoff? Yes. They say the commander couldn't stop crying when he saw all those dead bodies piled up under the walls. And Lieutenant Colonel Grey among them. Ah, tragic. Lady Elizabeth's eyes rolled into her head. She went into shock. Then she went into labour. A baby boy. They called him George too, after his father. Because of the circumstances of his birth and and his father's almost simultaneous death, his mother and the family around him, they decided that this clever little boy, you know, had the qualities to be a hero, just like his father. This is Edmund Bowen, historian, author and award-winning opera singer. In 1998, he wrote a book about this clever young boy whose father died in battle a few days before he was born. It's called To Be a Hero, a biography of Sir George Grey. Right till the end, he thought of himself as a hero, and he admired uh, the other Victorian heroes. Today, our George Grey is buried alongside many of those Victorian heroes at St Paul's Cathedral in London. In a way, he earned that honour. He served twice as the Governor of New Zealand and once as the Premier, equivalent of the Prime Minister. In his day, he was famous as a radical progressive, a deep believer in democracy and egalitarianism, a protector of Indigenous rights. But to be a hero wasn't the only title Edmund Bowen thought of for his biography. One of them I seem to remember was um, Henry Tancred's description of him as a terrible and fatal man. George Grey is also the man who launched military invasions of Waikato, Taranaki, the Hutt Valley and the Bay of Plenty. He ordered the illegal and unjust confiscation of millions of acres of Māori land. His arrogance and stubbornness caused chaos all through his later career in Parliament. Today there aren't many people who'd describe George Grey as a hero. But his determination to become one was a driving force through his whole life. And one has to go back into the 19th century mind. It was thought that just about anything was possible. And so you get these extraordinary individuals who make a colossal impact on their society. George Grey was raised with everyone telling him he was going to be one of these heroes of empire. You get the feeling he might have been a little bit spoiled. Like when he ran away from boarding school, his family didn't punish him. Instead, they got a private tutor who encouraged his interests in science, philosophy, history. He was a sophisticated kid, often hung out with adults rather than children his own age. In his 20s, he graduated Sandhurst Military College with top marks and a special commendation. 
Lieutenant Gray has not only acquitted himself with the greatest credit in this examination in the prescribed course of studies, but having also extended his acquirements far beyond its limits into the highest branches of mathematical science. The board desire, by recording this fact in a special edition to their certificate, to mark their sense of his superior merits and talents. So, he was a smart kid. A couple of historians I've talked to describe him as a genius. In 1830, he was commissioned with the 83rd Regiment of Foot and deployed to Ireland. This is the first place where you see a side of Gray's character that goes hand in hand with his ambition to become a hero. Gray was a humanitarian. And this was genuine. You know, it shines through everything in his career. Um, he made terrible mistakes, but always at the bottom of everything was this strong humanitarian uh, feeling. In 1833, newly promoted to the rank of lieutenant, Gray went against the wishes of his commanding officer and wrote a report protesting British oppression of Irish Catholics. I haven't been able to track down a copy of that report anywhere. I think it was probably just tossed in a bin somewhere. But years later, he wrote even more strongly about the Irish. Whilst those toiling thousands were creating wealth, almost fabulous in amount, for a foreign landlord, and were ever and ever adding to the value of his capital in land, but the barest subsistence was left to them. They were without the power of legislation, or means of removing the evils of their condition. Ireland marked Gray's political awakening. He was fascinated by the writings of people like Edward Gibbon Wakefield, who argued colonisation could solve poverty and oppression in Britain and Ireland. He actually joined the New Zealand Company, which Wakefield founded to colonise Aotearoa in 1837. If you want to know more about all of that, we have done a previous episode all about Wakefield. Be sure to check it out if you haven't already. Anyway... Gray convinced his superiors to send him on a mission to Western Australia, scouting new spots for Wakefield's colonial settlements. And, of course, the result of it was this extraordinary adventure, but it was hair-raising just about throughout, and a total disaster. He very nearly died, and so did his companions. I mean, one or two did. Yeah, it turned out, letting a 25-year-old with absolutely zero experience lead an expedition into the untracked Australian wilderness wasn't such a great idea. Gray's group arrived on shore in searing heat. They couldn't find any fresh water, and on the very first day, one of their dogs died of thirst. A couple of days later... The wet season arrived and their horses started dying too as they struggled inland through ravines and thunderstorms. Eventually, Gray had to admit defeat. He sent most of his men back to the coast while he led a small group on a scouting mission looking for an easier path forward. That's when things got really bad. A few days into his hike, Gray got into a skirmish with local Aboriginal people, probably members of the Warra Orra. But before we get into the story, two warnings. 
first, we only have George Gray's word for what happened here, and we don't know how much his story lines up with the actual facts. Second, Gray talks about Aboriginal people in ways which sound pretty offensive today, but his actual views on race are a bit complicated. We'll get into that in just a moment. Anyway, George Gray was leading his scouting mission, and while he may not have known it, he was trespassing on sacred land. Local Aboriginal people warned him to leave, yelling and brandishing spears, but he just ignored them and kept on walking. Here's historian Amanda Nettlebeck from the University of Adelaide. He arrives on the northwest coast up near the Kimberley, an area, of course, of immensely rich uh, Aboriginal cultural significance. So, you know, his parties were effectively walking uninvited into very important Aboriginal country, and it's not at all surprising that they would have come adrift in terms of hostile encounters. He tries to de-escalate the the hostility by showing that they come in peace, but um, clearly they're really not supposed to be there. Gray wrote in his journal that he was walking through a gloomy patch of forest with another young man on February 20th. Suddenly, Aboriginal warriors burst out of hiding all around them. Each tree, each rock seemed to give forth its black denizen, as if by enchantment. A moment before the most solemn silence pervaded these woods, we deemed that not a human being moved within miles of us, and now they rang with savage and ferocious yells, and fierce armed men crowded around us on every side, bent on our destruction. Certain death appeared to stare us in the face. Grey said he fired a blast from a shotgun over the warriors' heads in warning, but they kept coming, throwing spears. The other man Grey was with frantically tried to yank the waterproof cover off his rifle. One spear shattered Grey's shotgun. He threw it away, seized the rifle from the young man, tore off the cover and raised it to fire. As he did, spears fell all around him. One hit him in the arm, the other lodged deep in his hip. As I fell, I heard the savage yells of the natives' delight and triumph. Raised by momentary rage and indignation, I made a strong effort and in a moment was on my legs. The spear was wrenched from my wound. Gray fought through the pain. He raised his rifle and aimed at the leader of the Aborigines. The man fell, mortally wounded. The rest of the warriors vanished. Gray staggered backwards, and as he did, the Aborigines reappeared to recover their leader. Gray kept his rifle ready, but he said he didn't fire again. It would have been an unnecessary piece of barbarity. I already felt deeply the death of him I had been compelled to shoot. I believe that when a fellow creature falls by one's hand, even in a single combat rendered unavoidable by self-defence, it is impossible not sincerely to regret the force of so cruel a necessity. Now, we only have Gray's account of this battle, and if we could hear the Aboriginal side of the story, I doubt they'd think Gray acted in self-defence. From their perspective, this was a guy who had ignored multiple clear warnings against trespassing, ignored them and just marched miles inland over sacred ground. But 
Edmund Bowen thinks he was sincere in his regret over killing this man. That was a a genuine feeling because throughout his career, when, for example, with the disasters in the Maori Wars and so on, he would be deeply affected and develop this habit of locking himself in his study in a state of morbid depression, you know, sometimes for days. And uh, this, of course, didn't go down well with the politicians of the time who couldn't get straight answers from him when he was in that kind of mood. But the point was that early youthful experience of coming so close to death and actually killing someone, um, the psychological effect of that never left him. Gray made it back to camp and was carried to safety. The wound in his hip was serious. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life. But that didn't stop him launching another, even more disastrous expedition the next year. This time, he was marooned by a storm. His crew were forced to trek more than 700 kilometres overland to Perth. One of them died in the process. As the old saying goes, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Or in Gray's case, when life gives you two failed, fatal expeditions into the Australian wilderness, write a book about it. A best-selling book that, at the time, was compared to Robinson Crusoe. And, uh, you know, right through his life, he'd meet people uh, who had admired his first book, And um, that sort of set him off as the coming young man who was strong, um, physically brave, all the rest of it. And that put him off to a a great start. I don't know whether to call it just good PR or full-on propaganda because... like when when I read your book's account of this voyage and compare it to sort of the the tone in his book, it's just like the, this. He nearly got his entire expedition killed um, through his own inexperience. Yeah, and yet he comes out of this whole thing smelling of roses. Well, yes, he, he yes he did. One can you know, criticize him for. Um, puffery and all that kind of thing and and exaggerating everything that he did. But beneath all that is a, a, a vein of truth. I don't want to be too cynical about Gray's writing. Like, he was clearly a brave and determined person. He wanted to be a hero, but he was prepared to put the work in. But his book also reveals a few character flaws. Like, let me give you a quote from Edmund Bowen's biography. Nowhere in his journals does Gray blame himself for the organisational disasters of the expeditions. Instead, he criticises his companions for failing to reach his own high standards of fitness, bravery and mental toughness. This is something you see throughout Gray's life. He never misses a chance to paint himself in the best possible light. And if something goes wrong, it's always someone else's fault. 
But anyway, Gray's superiors were impressed by his heroic story, and they rewarded him by making him the resident magistrate of Albany. That's at the southern tip of Western Australia. He didn't have any real legal experience, but he made the best of his position, not least by marrying a beautiful young woman called Eliza Spencer within a month of arriving in town. In 1840, the newly married Mr and Mrs Gray sailed back to the UK to visit their families. During that voyage, George Gray wrote something which will change his life forever. In his year-long stint as resident magistrate, he'd seen firsthand how colonisation was affecting Aboriginal Australians. And on his trip home, he wrote those thoughts down in a 37-point report on British Indigenous policy. He stuffed that report into an envelope and mailed it to the colonial secretary, Lord John Russell. Now, I know 19th century policy memos might not be everyone's idea of thrilling reading, but this document is super important. It's a manifesto for everything Gray is going to do in his future career. Not just in Australia, but in New Zealand and South Africa. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but let's just pull out some juicy bits. I have the honour of submitting to your lordship a report upon the best means of promoting the civilization of the Aboriginal inhabitants of Australia. Bit of a classic 19th century line there. You constantly see Europeans dismissing indigenous people as uncivilised barbarians and savages. There's a lot of language like that in Gray's report. Like, early on he says Aboriginal people are hopelessly immersed in their present state of barbarism. But then he goes on to say something else. He describes Aboriginal people as as apt and intelligent as any other race of men I am acquainted with. So what gives? Well, we need to remember that in Gray's day, even the most progressive, enlightened Europeans talked about other cultures as being inherently barbaric or inferior. But Gray was among the relative few who didn't think that was down to race. He thought all races were capable of becoming civilised. They just needed some help. And who better to help than a humanitarian hero like himself? That's what this 37-point report is all about. How to uplift Aboriginal people. And Gray claimed many Aboriginal people wanted to join colonial society. He thought they were being held back by customary traditions and laws. I have known many instances of natives who have been almost or quite civilised, being compelled by other natives to return to the bush, more particularly girls who have been betrothed in their infancy and who, on approaching the years of puberty, have been compelled by their husbands to return to join them. Gray believed the British should step in to stop this sort of thing. He wanted a more aggressive approach to imposing British law on Aboriginal communities. They should, as far as is possible, be taught that the British laws are to supersede their own, so that any native who is suffering under their own customs may have the power of an appeal to Great Britain. So, Gray might have thought he was being a hero here, but obviously from a modern perspective we can see all kinds of problems with forcing British values and laws on another culture. It's particularly grating coming from an upper-class young know-it-all like George Gray. But this report did have some important insights. 
particularly on the problems he'd seen Aboriginal people face in colonial courts. The natives are not tried by a jury of their peers, but by a jury having interests directly opposed to their own, and who can scarcely avoid being in some degree prejudiced against native offenders. He also pointed out the economic pressures on Aboriginal people. The existence of an uncertain and irregular demand for labour. They're generally receiving a very inadequate reward for the services they render. They're not being taught that different values are attached to different degrees of labour, as well as to the skill and neatness with which it is performed. Gray argued the colonial government should set up schools for Aboriginal people, provide land grants and funding so they could buy livestock for farming. He even suggested rewarding Aboriginal people for registering births and marriages and hiring young Aboriginal boys to be trained as lawyers and interpreters. When Lord Russell got this report, he loved it. He loved it so much, he had it presented to Parliament. And they loved it so much, they made George Gray the governor of all of South Australia. Why? Well, George Grey wasn't alone with his humanitarian ideas of uplifting and civilising Indigenous people. Here's Professor Amanda Nettlebeck again. Abolition, of course, of slavery has just occurred in 1833, and then the humanitarian focus turns from slaves to Aboriginal people um, for the rest of that decade. And In the colonial office, there is a sort of um, gathering climate of um, evangelical reformist uh, agendas to give legal rights to Aboriginal people. So George Gray was in the right place at the right time with the right kind of ideas. He was also just 28 years old, the youngest governor in the entire British Empire. But now his theorising about colonial policy had to face some tough realities. Gray arrived in Adelaide to find a colony in crisis. A week earlier, Aboriginal tribesmen had attacked a group of colonists and driven off their sheep. The previous governor had then stood by and watched while a group of settlers retaliated by murdering several Aborigines near the Murray River. As soon as Gray arrived, he wrote a letter in the local paper condemning the vigilantes. We should allow no circumstances whatever to excite in our breast a desire for revenge. I can never sanction any mode of punishment which may involve alike the innocent and guilty men, women and children in its consequences. The colonists were shocked. Just how naive was this young governor? One wrote this in response to Gray. The blacks only become more violent and daring. Such symptoms of hostility should be checked in the bud. For the longer the blacks are allowed to practice their murders and robberies without a show of retaliation on the part of the whites, the more difficult it will be, in the end, to put their aggressions down. Race relations wasn't Gray's only problem. South Australia was bankrupt, and it was his job to sort out their finances. Edmund Bowen. At his best, he could be an outstandingly good day-to-day administrator. He had imagination. He always made sure that he had 
as much information about whatever he was doing as he possibly could. And, of course, he could write brilliant um, letters and reports to the, the colonial office. The colonial office were big fans of Gray's cost-cutting. The colonists, not so much. Gray fired half the police force, cancelled public works projects and refused to pay debts which had been racked up by the previous governor. The unemployment rate rose astronomically, but Gray refused to back down. It was a stressful first year in the job, and on top of everything else, he and Eliza were hit by a personal tragedy. The death of their five-month-old son. There were rumours that Gray blamed Eliza for their son's death, that he thought she'd failed to look after their baby properly or something like that. It might have been the start of a growing rift between the couple. But Gray couldn't be distracted by grief. At the same time he was trying to slash costs in the colonies, he was also enforcing his new Aboriginal policies. One of the biggest flashpoints between indigenous people and colonists was on the overland routes where the colonists would drive livestock across Aboriginal land towards Adelaide. Amanda Nettleback says there'd already been deaths on both sides. He arrived in in the middle of that growing problem and he tried to offset the risk of further violence by sending out a police expedition party to intercept an overland party that was coming through in 1841. He sent that police party out under the command of the protector of Aborigines, Matthew Morehouse, with the idea that they would be able to de-escalate violence. So really, he was imagining that that would be a conciliation party. Um, But as was often the case with these encounters, the hostilities escalated, and when they did, the police started shooting, and that resulted in the Rufus River Massacre. And that ended up being the largest single massacre of Aboriginal people, at least on official record, in colonial South Australia, and that happened under Grey's watch. At least 30 members of the Murrawarra tribe were killed in the Rufus River Massacre, possibly many more. Grey responded by setting up a new magistrate's office in the area. Remember, this was all part of his 37-point plan to civilise Aboriginal people. Another part of that plan was the Aborigines Evidence Act, which Grey passed in 1844. Until this point, Aboriginal people in South Australia were barred from giving testimony in court. And from his point of view, it was important not just in terms of prosecuting cases that involved settler and Aboriginal conflict, but it was also, from his point of view, important in prosecuting cases where Aboriginal people committed crimes against each other. From his point of view, that was one of the the key reasons for why Aboriginal people were were delayed from rising to civilisation because they were allowed to practice their barbarous laws from his point of view. Gray's plan failed on this front. 
Aboriginal people didn't suddenly give up on customary law and rush into the colonial courts to settle their disputes. And we didn't see many more settlers convicted of crimes against Aboriginal people either. In the end, Gray's Indigenous policies didn't work. The violence and killing continued. From where I'm sitting, it looks like he made two mistakes. First, he underestimated the depth of the settlers' animosity towards Aboriginal people. Most just didn't share his ideas about racial equality or his ambition to uplift Indigenous people. Second, he failed to understand that most Aboriginal people didn't want to assimilate into British society. So he wasn't the hero of Aboriginal rights he'd hoped to become. But as Edmund Bowen says, he did try. You have to give him the credit for being among the comparatively few colonial officials and intellectuals of his time who was seriously interested in the Aboriginal peoples. He learnt as much of their languages as he could. Um, He was fascinated always by their stories and their traditions and customs. The colonial office seems to have taken the same view. Gray was their golden child, the guy who'd cracked down on colonial finances and at least tried to cut down on violence between colonists and Aborigines. And now they had another troubled colony in mind for him to run. In late 1845, George Grey was made Governor of New Zealand. I think there are strong grounds for arguing that he is possibly the most important Pākehā in New Zealand history. This is historian and author Vincent O'Malley. He's written extensively about Grey's two governorships of New Zealand through the 1840s, 50s and 60s. A giant of British imperialism in New Zealand and... um, you know, his legacy is everywhere today, through land confiscations, through all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember driving down Grey Street almost every day in Hamilton. He's all over the place. There's Greytown, Greylin, all these different places named after him. Yeah, Greymouth, I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's everywhere. You know, for a long time, his legacy was that of good Governor Grey. He was regarded as this humane, progressive, humanitarian champion of Māori and Pākehā. That reputation is slightly undermined by the fact that Gray prosecuted not one, but two wars against Māori during his first year as governor. Although, to be fair, one of those conflicts was already raging before he arrived, the Northern War. This all kicked off after the Napui chief Honeheke repeatedly cut down the flagstaff at Kororareka and raided the settlement. Partly, this was a symbolic protest against what Heke and his ally, Teruki Kawati, saw as breaches of the Treaty of Waitangi. When Grey arrived, the Northern War wasn't going well for the British. They'd suffered a crushing defeat when they tried to assault Ohiowai Pa. But now, Grey was on hand with a lot more troops, and he was determined to end this war as quickly as possible. One of the first things he does is put a time limit on his predecessor's ultimatum to Honeheke and Kawati. He says they've got five days to comply with the terms that the Crown demand of them to make their submission. Well, that's it. And so at the end of those five days, he orders 
uh, Despard to attack the latest um, position at Rupekapeka. And really that that battle in January 1846 ends indecisively. I mean, the, the British seize and, and take possession of an empty par in a position that is strategically of no value whatsoever. But Grey proclaims this as a brilliant success. If you want to hear more about that battle, check out the first episode of the New Zealand Wars documentary series. It's called Stories of Rua Peka Peka. There's a podcast as well as a TV documentary. I'll put a link in the show notes on our website. Anyway, like Vincent said, Rua Peka Peka wasn't a military success for the British. But Grey found a way to squirm out of this situation. His Māori allies, people like Tamati Wakanene, suggested that Heke and Kawati were probably willing to make peace after Ruapekapeka. They asserted their mana, and there wasn't really anything to be gained from more fighting. And Gray, he took that advice on board. So he claims victory in the Northern War, but he kind of acts like somebody who knows that they haven't really achieved that, they haven't imposed the the substantive sovereignty that he was seeking. Mm. Is it a form of peacemaking? You could argue that he's, you know finding a way to back down without the British losing too much face. Yeah, I think for Gray it is about um, about perceptions, and he was, throughout his life, quite masterful at manipulating the way that people viewed particular situations. For example, you know, the catalyst for the Northern War had been the fate of the Flagstaff at Russell, at Kororarika. And Gray never put that back up again because he knew that it couldn't be defended, it couldn't be protected. And if that was to be toppled again, that would expose the lie of his claim to victory for all to see. So, you know, in various ways, he, he, he acts as if he knows that the outcome of that war is not the brilliant success that he, that he claims in his dispatches to London and elsewhere. Gray's next war was in the Wellington region. Simmering tensions between Māori tribes and Pākehā colonists over dodgy land purchases erupted into violent conflict. The Hutt War. In Northland, Grey inherits a war, but in central New Zealand he, he manufactures one himself, really. The bone of contention in the region is lands in the Hutt Valley that the New Zealand Company claims to have purchased that are being occupied by Māori. And those Māori eventually agree to leave provided they receive compensation for their crops, for their homes and so on. You know, they're they're being forced off their lands. Grey outright refuses to negotiate with them. Um, And, you know, the troops are sent in to to evict them and just to destroy their homes and so on. Subsequent to that, you have the conflict at Bulcott's Farm in May 1846, and Battle Hill in August. Um, And in between those two battles, in July 1846, he personally um, masterminds the kidnapping of Te Rauparaha. Te Rauparaha is probably a name you've heard before. A legendary Ngāti Toa Rangatira who'd fought all over New Zealand during the Musket Wars. Te Rauparaha had also been at the centre of the Wairo incident in 1843, where 22 settlers and four Māori were killed when those settlers tried to illegally arrest him. We talked about this in a previous episode about Edward Gibbon Wakefield. His brother was killed at Wairo. Gray claimed he kidnapped Te Rauparaha because the chief was masterminding the hut war. 
He had no evidence to back up this claim. In fact, Te Rauparaha was publicly calling for peace throughout the entire conflict. Vincent O'Malley thinks Gray was really motivated in part by vengeance for the Waido incident and partly because he considered Te Rauparaha a threat to his authority. Gray's act in, in, in seizing Te Rauparaha, taking him away to Auckland, um, essentially as a prisoner, is something that shocks Māori throughout the country because this is one of the greatest rangatira in the land who's been treated in this in this way. And it's it's interesting that this is not just Te Rauparaha's allies, it's his enemies who are very um, shocked by this. That's right. And, and, and it's not just in terms of seizing Te Rauparaha, there, there are also... There are five Māori who are captured near Poatahanui who are exiled to Australia, uh, one of whom dies there in captivity. Um, and another man, uh, Whariaichu, who's executed um, for rebellion, even though no evidence is submitted against him that he had personally killed anybody. He's simply somebody who Gray had determined to make an example of. So... Again, from a very early stage, you have these clear indications of Gray's ruthlessness. So, what's going on here? This doesn't seem like the Gray who wanted to be a humanitarian hero of Indigenous rights. Well, look, it's possible all this posturing about caring for Indigenous people was just that. Posturing. Just a front. Something which gave Gray cover to undermine the very rights he was supposedly upholding. Alternatively, it could be about politics. Some historians think Gray wanted to win respect within Māori society, and he judged that capturing a chief as famous as Te Rauparaha would increase his mana with other rangatira. Whatever his motivation, Gray held Te Rauparaha captive for two years without charge. The elderly chief's mana and health both degraded. He died soon after he was released, in 1849. Many Māori leaders protested Te Rauparaha's treatment, but it wasn't enough to completely ruin his reputation. In fact, many Māori were highly supportive of Grey. We've already mentioned the Ngāpui leader, Tamati Wakanene. Another important ally was Te Whirofiro paramount rangatira of the Waikato region. Here's Waikato Tainui historian Rahui Papa. Yeah, so he came to New Zealand and he befriended a lot of the chiefs. Mind you, he had to, to allow the fledgling city of Auckland to survive and the uh, settler population. But what he did is he went over and above, like recording waiata uh, and kōrero uh, from uh, various chiefs, including Te Whiro Whiro. Uh, And so he really struck up a real rapport uh, with some of these chiefs. And, uh, and he was. He was a progressive uh, advocate for Indigenous rights and his early writings and uh, things like that. Gray had a genuine fascination with Māori culture. He learned to speak te reo fluently and published several books of Māori legends, waiata, stories. He even took in Te Whirofiro's son, Matutaira Tafiao, for a few months. He was uh, a bit of a stellar guy, you know, taking in Tafiao and Te Rauparaha's daughter. They lived with him uh, at his house, uh, and that's how much of a relationship he had with those um, with those rangatira of that time. But again, we need to be careful about motivations, because although the friendships and interests were probably genuine, 
there was another side to this. Here's Vincent O'Malley again. In a way, he he engaged with them and, and learned about them in order to destroy them. You know, Māori and other indigenous peoples, and, and his vision would become essentially brown Europeans um, and their own culture, their own civilization would, would be eliminated. And that was seen at the time by, by Europeans as something that was progressive, supposedly raising up these indigenous peoples. We're going to talk more about the side of George Gray next episode, but in his first term, Gray's understanding of Māori culture actually helped him dodge a couple of potential disasters in Māori-Pākehā relations. And these near disasters came courtesy of the Secretary of State for Colonies, who, in a fun but confusing coincidence, was also called George Gray. We're just going to call him Earl Gray from now on, because he was one and it makes life a bit simpler. And before you ask, yes, Earl Grey tea is named after him. So Earl Grey sent Governor Grey two instructions, which probably would have caused an immediate war with Māori if they'd actually been enforced. The first had to do with land. Earl Grey ordered that all land which wasn't being actively cultivated by Māori should be declared waste land. This land was supposed to be taken from Māori and sold on to settlers. As Ministry of Culture and Heritage historian David Green points out, that plan was a blatant breach of the Treaty of Waitangi. The Treaty Article 2 quite clearly reserves to Māori all their their taonga, which clearly means more than just where they happen to live and and the immediate surroundings, because many Iwina, I mean, Naitahu are a prime example, were almost semi-nomadic in how they moved around from season to season to to utilise particular resources that could be quite a long way from their permanent homes. Governor Gray knew that if he followed Earl Gray's order, it would be tantamount to declaring war, so he quietly ignored those instructions. But he still had to get more land for the settlers, so instead of just taking it like Earl Gray suggested, he launched into a massive land purchasing scheme. His biggest buy was the Canterbury Purchase also called Kemp's Deed. This purchase involved an absolutely massive area of land, stretching all the way from Kaiapoi to Milford Sound. Supposedly, I think, 20 million acres. David Green says the Banks Peninsula chief Tikau offered to sell the Canterbury block for £5 million. That's a bit more than $600 million in today's money. Look, if you're trying to value the land today, you'd be talking... Uh, hundreds of billions at least, I I have no idea. Um, But when George Gray organised this purchase, he allocated just £2,000, less than a penny an acre. That's like 0.000003% of what Tikal had suggested as a fair price. Gray claimed this was as large an amount as they could profitably spend, or as was likely to be of any real benefit to them. Gray probably realised that Naitahu was sort of between a rock and a hard place. A lot of their land had been seized by Ngāti Toa in the musket wars, and they'd only recently reoccupied a lot of it. Having the Crown accept Naitahu's right to sell this land would help reassert their mana in the region. 
Gray seems to have exploited this, partly through some pretty dodgy instructions he gave to the guy who negotiated this purchase, Henry Kemp. He had instructions from Lieutenant Governor Eyre, basically told him to uh, treat the Maori honourably and set out clearly the reserves that are going to be put aside for them. But he had secret instructions from Gray to ignore Eyre's instructions and just get hold of the land and don't mark out any reserves and, and promise the Ngātahu as, as little as possible. Kemp promised substantial reserves because, it, as I mentioned, Ngātahu were semi-nomadic, so that they, at different seasons, they had eel fisheries and or travelled for particular resources. And Kemp promised that their reserves would include these seasonal resources. But the English language deed only talked about plantations and settlements or, or towns, a quite different sense to what Kemp was telling Ngātahu. And in fact, in the end, the reserves were sort of the order of 10 acres per person, which were completely inadequate as an economic base. What Ngātahu had been told verbally was certainly not, not mm. on it. There were verbal promises of, well, we'll set up a school and a hospital and things like that. And this happens in the North Island as well later. And, and these things almost never happen. This dodgy deal would cause enormous hardship for Naitahu over the coming decades. But from Gray's perspective, this was all a big success. He'd managed to get a whole lot of land for the settlers, and he hadn't started another war with Māori. But then, Earl Gray chucked another hot potato at Governor Gray, and this one had to do with politics. The settlers were growing in numbers, and they wanted more of a say in how the colony was run. So in 1846, Britain passed the New Zealand Constitution Act, which laid out plans for a new democratically elected parliament. There were two big problems in this act from Governor Gray's perspective. First, having to deal with parliament would dilute his power as governor. But secondly... This new constitution specifically excluded most Māori from voting. Vincent O'Malley. The qualification to vote is um, an English language literacy test, not unlike the, the, you know, the latest sort of Jim Crow laws in the US. And this is at a time when Māori have very high rates of literacy, but in today Māori, not English. So the effect of that would be to set up a parliament for what's then a tiny minority of the population, Pākehā, whilst excluding the majority, Māori. And Gray predicts that if this is implemented, it's not something that Māori will take lying down. So he successfully gets that deferred for five years. And then there's a new constitution that, that's um, provided for in 1852, New Zealand Constitution Act. And that has a different test that provides that adult men over the age of 21 who own a certain amount of property have the right to vote. Technically, this new constitution was colourblind. So long as you owned or rented property, you could vote. It was actually much more liberal than the voting law in the UK. But in effect, this second constitution blocked Māori from voting just like the first one. Because that property qualification is based on European forms of land tenure, again it excludes most Māori from voting and Gray was is supposed to stay in the country long enough to implement this new constitution but he leaves at the end of 1853 before it has because I think he can see what's brewing on the horizon. 
what was brewing was the New Zealand Wars. Technically, these wars had already started back in the 1840s with the Waido Incident, the Northern War and the Hutt War. But those conflicts were relatively small-scale. What was coming would be much worse. Thousands of people would be killed or injured. Millions of acres of land would be confiscated. Māori rights to self-determination and self-government would be ended. And while George Grey left New Zealand in 1853, that wasn't the end of his story in this country. When he arrived back in Aotearoa eight years later, he'd preside over the worst conflict between Māori and Pākehā in New Zealand history. In our next episode, the story of Governor Grey gets much, much darker. Very special thanks to our guests Edmund Bowen, Vincent O'Malley, Amanda Nettlebeck, Rahui Papa and David Green. We also had help from Neil Atkinson from the Ministry of Culture and Heritage. For more information on George Grey, I can recommend Edmund Bowen's biography, To Be a Hero, and Vincent O'Malley's book, The Great War for New Zealand. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also post about us on social media or just tell a friend about Black Sheep. That all really helps new people find this show. If you're looking for other stuff about New Zealand history, why not check out the Aotearoa History Show? Me and my mate Lee Marama McLaughlin go through the whole sweep of this country's story, from geological origins right up to the modern day. You can find that podcast and a bunch of other awesome RNZ podcasts at rnz.co.nz. Just click on the podcasts and series page. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin, and our sound engineer is William Saunders. Our voice actors are Simon Dickinson, Adam McCauley, and Max Toll. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.